Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation, our first release of 2021. In this episode, we bring back a repeat guest of the show, our good friend, Michael Zakur, founder of Five New Digital, an exclusive consulting organization that advises its clients on strategy, structure, implementation, and transformation in the age of the digital industrial revolution across the five new, new retail, new technology, new finance, new supply chain, and new manufacturing. He's also the author of New Retail, Born in China, Going Global. We look back on the past year and note the major developments across China's e-commerce and consumer behavior, discussing categories that are doing really well and why, non-traditional categories that are on the rise, exploring the keys to finding purchase motivation amid China's post-consumer high, China's anti-monopoly policies and their long-term implications, the digital online platforms that Michael is most excited about this year, the rising dominance of information capitalism and its implication on culture, bridging the in-store to the digital experience, and discussing why live streaming has yet to take off in North America and looking ahead to when it will. Enjoy. My message to any US-based brand or retailer or CPG, if you're not seriously investing in live streaming right now, you have to. It's going to be table stakes in the next six months. So for me, it's not a question of why isn't it bigger or will it ever be bigger here? I'll say here, I guarantee it. It's going to be table stakes in the coming year. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Michael, welcome back to the show, my friend. It's good to see you again. Hey, Todd. It's always good to see you. Thanks for having me back. For those who want to know Michael's background and and how he became really a a China expert all around retail and commerce and things that are going on in China, go back. We've we've had Michael on before. Just excellent episodes that will always stand the test of time. You can never get enough good information from Michael. Those episodes will have those. But for now, we're going to jump right into it with you. Let's start by taking a look back at the major trends that you've been seeing across China e-commerce and consumer behavior over the past year. Yeah, I think um, where where we have to start is what we're really seeing now is a blending of the idea of what is e-commerce with the idea of what is social commerce. Um, We've been heading this way for a couple of years now, and and certainly COVID sped this up. But I think if you look at everything that Alibaba is doing, uh, what Kuaishu is doing, what Doyan is doing, the the line between what is e-commerce and what is social commerce, um, I don't think the Chinese consumer really sees a difference anymore. There is an expectation that live streaming, AR, VR, ER, um, it's all one and the same now, right? It's all becoming part of this larger than life, you know, technicolor, robust experience of shopping. And hey, you know, let's face it, um, 
Chinese companies have been far better than their Western counterparts at making digital commerce shopping, where people are actually shopping. It's social, it's fun, it's engaging, it's robust, it's loud, it's colorful. It's everything that shopping should be. Um, you know, where in the West, we're still kind of in that, you know, we go onto a two dimensional flat screen and we see a menu of items and prices and we do a little bit of research, we click buy and we get the hell out of there. Right. Um, so that's to me, the, the number one trend is that that complete blend where people really aren't going to be talking about the difference between e-commerce and social commerce anymore. And I think that really goes hand in hand with the other big trend, which is we've seen the full maturity, the full flowering of the new retail model in China. So where we don't really see a difference anymore between people's perceptions of e-commerce and physical retail. Um, the reality and the expectation is that they're intimately connected. So that combination that we define new retail is the complete integration of online, offline technology, supply chain, and media has come to full fruition. And then within that paradigm, the blending of dynamic, video, colorful, social, and e-commerce becomes one. Those are the, those, that's the really the big change we've seen in the last year. So what categories do you think would you say are doing really, really well right now in China? You know, as fast as the China market changes in terms of consumer tastes and in, in terms of what's on trend and what's not, uh, how there's, you know, new technology seemingly every couple of months, new platforms every quarter. One thing that really doesn't change much is what the most popular categories are. Um, it's the one thing that I can say has been consistent at least since 2015 when cross-border commerce really started to take flight. I mean, you know, in 14, it was introduced and it was largely experimental. Um, you know, the, the kind of the rules and the regs and the FTZs and what is, a, you know, cross-border. Uh, but, but really since 2015, 16, when, when, you know, it found its footing, whether it's cross-border or domestic, the, the same categories dominate. It's right at the top of the list, apparel. And these are in no particular order, but it's apparel. Um, is it? It's cosmetics and body care. It's consumer electronics. It's mother, baby, child, and it's health, vitamins, supplements. And you know the the trend is you know we identified five six years ago. Uh, we describe it as anything that goes on the body or in the body is where people are spending their money, and that really hasn't changed much. I think where people are looking for these products and how they view the products and how the consumer journey has taken shape and the things that they deem important about each of those categories and making their choice between brand A and brand B has changed, but the categories themselves have been incredibly consistent. Are there any categories then? I mean, if, if there's no distinct changes at the top of the leaderboard, Maybe looking a little bit deeper, is there anything up and coming that is starting to see that up and to the right hockey stick curve? Any categories that you think that could start to challenge in the near future those those top ranked categories that are doing well in China right now? 
Yeah, I, I think hot on the trail of, of those those traditional categories, we're starting to see um, a sharp movement towards home products, um, kitchen goods, uh, home home furnishings. Um, that's that was a trend that was starting to develop pre-COVID, um, but certainly since COVID. People spent a heck of a lot more time in their homes. It didn't matter whether you were living in Shanghai or Paris or New York. Um, and when we think about the, these categories, it's almost like when you're accepting that the place you used to just sleep and cook is also now where you're schooling your children. It's where you're doing your exercise. Um, it's where you're being educated. It's where you're doing your work. And so these categories that fit into, you know, the home is the castle, the home is the domain, the home is the sort sort of all in one place where your, your life is taking place. You know, even in China where, you know, obviously things are much more open and people are out and about, uh, people are still spending far more time at home. So when we look at, you know, kitchen appliances, home furnishings, certainly upgrading in consumer electronics, computers and peripherals, um, you know, I think the demise of the the PC, as it was foretold, you know, a few years ago was far more premature. Um, so, uh, you know, we've seen a huge uptick in, in computers and computer peripherals. Um, and so I think those are two right there. Um, home, home decor, kitchen appliances, um, and, and, you know, anything to do with computers, peripherals and education are, have really sharply climbed in the last year or so. What do you think is driving that? And I know that that's a bit of a, a layup question when you can point to COVID. But like you said, that was somewhat pre-pandemic as a movement. Now, this is very, in my opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, culturally driven, where for decades you had not even just mom and dad at home, but you also had grandma and grandpa around as well. They just typically did a lot of the cooking. And ergo, we started to point to saying, hey, young kids are just eating out all the time. They don't really know how to cook. Is is there been a cultural shift? You know, is this staying at home? Are people now starting to like realize we should learn how to cook. Maybe we're more interested in cooking. Maybe their their culinary tastes are starting to expand. They want to try new things. It's like, what's a blender? We should get a blender in here. What's this Vitamix machine driving from a health thing? Maybe these smoothies are are becoming on vogue, and we need a, a you know we need something in the house that can do that. What is what what do you think is behind this kind of spurring of that category? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly the the breakdown of the multi generational household has has a lot to do with it. Um, that 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 that's certainly the place you would start. I I also think just in you know looking at the younger generations, there's been a move, sort of a a back to basics, a back to nature um, feeling almost. I think you know what we see. Uh, when we look at Gen Z and Gen Y in China, um, I think there's a little bit of materialism fatigue going on in China um, and that you you know, the idea is you don't have to be out all the time. You don't have to be buying just to show off all the time that, hey, I want to w live a, a well-rounded, full life. And 
I want to go back to learning how to do things. Now, there's a limit to that, which is why, you know, um, uh, you know, if you look at how Vitamix is, is rebounded in China, um, if we look at some of the other kitchen appliance categories, air fryers and cookies, you know, people still want the technology and the information and the guidance that's going to help them uh, along in that space. You know, I don't think people are necessarily going back to, you know, picking fresh ingredients from the fields and breaking them down and doing everything from scratch. Um, but I, I do think it's part of that that movement where um, people are just looking to, you know, kind of get back to basics a little bit and not have everything be digital and pre-catered to them. Uh, and I think it's a really positive thing. I think I think it's a really positive movement. Kind of tapping into that consumerism behavior, if I may, what you're alluding to is that there has been maybe a bit of a movement, and I don't know how to say that properly, but they are maybe saying, listen, we've kind of swung the pendulum a little bit far. Like we, we've we've enjoyed a lot of economic success. We've had a lot of money. Now we've been out spending and buying and maybe China's getting to that that point where are you saying like, is that the fatigue that we're talking about where maybe that's where they're starting to want to get back to basics? Yeah, I think it's exactly that. It's, um, you know, striving to achieve the Chinese dream, so to speak. Um, and, you know, you're you're working on the uh, the 996 schedule and you've got some prosperity and you've got some money. And then at the end of the day, you say, OK, and now what? Is that it? Is that all there is? Um, you know, it's almost sort of the um, Chinese version of suburban ennui, right? It's, um, you know, there's gotta be more to all of this. And, you know, and, and that, that actually, uh, kind of tracks back to a larger, um, picture look at, uh, if you recall my first book, uh, that came out in 2015 was called China's super consumers. And, you know, I took a deep look into Chinese history, culture, language, philosophy to answer the question, how did a country that was 90 percent agrarian and had a, um, you know, a GDP on the global list that was in the three digits? How did we go from that in 1980 to, you know, in the years leading up to writing the book in, you know, 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11? How did how do we get there? How do we go to the number two economy in the world and a consumption driven economy? What what happened there? And one of the most fascinating takeaways in the research that I did for the book was how similar um, the emergence of private enterprise and capitalism and accumulation in China mirrored that of the first super consumers, right? So one of the general conceits of the book was that the age of the first super consumers were the Americans of the post-World War II era, right? Um, that was when most of the world was still smoldering. Europe was in ashes. Asia was a mess. And, you know, um, the U.S. was largely left standing in, 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 is alone in the world as the only country that could produce the goods that the rest of the world needed and wanted, and the only country that had a demand for new goods that could equal the output for both domestic and export reasons. And so we really track closely, you know, how that how China developed the car culture in the early 2000s as prosperity rose, how uh, China developed a taste for traveling abroad, right? We remember the old 
um, I don't know if it's so old or if it still holds true, but you know, that, that image of the ugly American tourist. Well, you know, there were a whole lot of stories floating around in, you know, the 2008, nine, in 10, 12 period about, wow, look at these hordes of Chinese tourists swarming all these spots in the world and behaving badly and touching wildlife and defacing monuments. And, you know, how much was that true or how much is that just, you know, the media making um, a thing of it? But, but in every way, we saw these same consumption patterns. And so when you started get to, I might be getting a little too deep here, but, you know, when you looked at the, the literature um, and, and the movie scene, um, and the arts of the 1960s and 70s in the U.S., a lot of it was this self-reflection of hyper-consumerism and is this really what life is all about or is there something more meaningful here, which led to kind of the self-help 70s, if you will. Well, we've seen that same parallel in China, right? Development of a car culture, development of a tourist culture, development of a go, go, go attitude that, you know, we work, work, work. Now we're reaching that point, I think, in Chinese history or recent Chinese history where consumers are asking themselves and, and Chinese art and literature as well, is that all there is? Now, that that may, you know, challenge the audience to say, well, what the hell does this have to do with me trying to sell my brand or be a retailer or move a lot of CPG in China? Well, it has everything to do with it because what have we always talk about? You will find all the keys to purchase motivation in China through what we call language, culture, history, and philosophy. And over and over and over again, the brands and the retailers and the CPGs and the companies that make it in China spend the requisite time ahead of time and are constantly looking into those core four in order to build the Chinese version of who they are, right? What have we learned over the years? Exporting you to China doesn't work, not in the long term. You can get a short-term hit from it, but building the you from the ground up, the Chinese version of you and your company and your product is what wins. And so, you know, coming back to, you know, your original question, what's motivating these changes? I think we're seeing sort of a post-consumer high reflection of how we want to live our lives in China. And so spending is consistent, but the choices on what, where, when, why, and how to spend have changed dramatically in the wake of that change. Well, and speaking of changes, now we have new and ever-changing anti-monopoly policies. I would like to ask you, can you tell our audience a little bit about what some of those policies are and how they've been enacted this year? And then some of the impact that it's had right out of the gate. And then what you think some of the long-term implications are going to be in the future? I'll start by saying the laws on the books in terms of anti-competitive, anti-monopoly and antitrust is not so new. It's not as new as people think it is. It's certainly become the headline over the last year. Um, but if I can tell you a quick story, my first encounter with China's anti-monopoly laws goes all the way back to 2010. Um, at that time, I, uh, my company and I were contacted by uh, a group of, of lawyers who informed us that there was a major class action, global class action lawsuit being taken up against 30 of the largest airlines around the world and specifically against their cargo units. And essentially what the U.S. Justice Department caught them doing was between 2002 and 2010, 
all of these airlines globally had colluded, colluded to add a post 9-11 security surcharge onto all cargo flights and a post 9-11 fuel surcharge to all of their cargo flights. And this group of lawyers came to me and said, we did our research and about 20% of all the traffic uh, that the air cargo um, was going between the US and China in the class period. Um, could we actually go to China and put together a class of plaintiffs to take part in this class action lawsuit against these 30 air cargo carriers. And I looked them in the eye and I said, honest to God, I have no idea. <laughs> it was the first time I'd really ever thought about any kind of anti-competitive laws in China. Uh, long story short, um, I, I met with some people at the U.S. consulate, uh, the Chinese consulate in, in New York. I had some conversations with them. Uh, they directed me to some people at the Ministry of Commerce in Beijing. Um, after too many me meetings and discussions to recount here, um, the Ministry of Commerce let me know that they were working on a brand new set of laws and regulations um, in the anti-competitive, anti-monopoly case, uh, anti-monopoly space. And they thought this would be a wonderful opportunity um, to find out more about how it works in the West and how Chinese companies could, could take part. So the bottom line was um, by working through the Ministry of Commerce and um, um, national aviation authorities in China, um, we we worked with the the the, the authority that all freight forwarders and all cargo companies must be a part of this aviation group in China um, to keep their license. And the long and the short of it was um, they agreed to take part in this process with us. And they brought us more than 20,000 of their members who we had proven um, were injured uh, to use the legal term, through these surcharges. And at the end of the day, what happened was these 30,000 Chinese companies participated in the suit and they were all awarded monies in the damages from the suit that followed. So we're talking about these first laws and experiments going all the way back to 2009, 10, and 11. Okay, now that, that's the, the setup. What we're seeing today is we need to understand the context in which these anti-competitive, anti-monopoly laws, the new ones, right? The new ones that are being developed and put on the books. What's behind it, if you really peek behind the covers, is a genuine concern on the part of the Chinese government that a handful of companies in China mainly in the technology space, have become far too powerful, right? That a typical Chinese person can't wake up and then go to sleep at night without having spent a significant portion of their day touching properties and technologies owned and operated by Alibaba, JD, Tencent, Pinduoduo, and a few other companies, right? Now, what's interesting about that is it tracks exactly with the concern that's being shown in the United States about the big four here. Are we as a nation, are we as a government, and are we as consumers comfortable with essentially five companies, right? 
who control everything that we do from an information perspective. And the question and the tipping point, I think, both in China and the U.S. is what makes these companies great in one sense is that we can't live without them. What makes this group of companies dangerous is we can't live without them. And so when you look at the GDRE laws in Europe, you're seeing scrutiny of big tech companies around the globe. China is not alone in this. The pressure is there already in Europe. It's growing in the U.S. and clearly it's underway and being addressed in China. Okay, so it's part of a much bigger question that we as global citizens have to face. You know, in my opinion, what's going to shape the 21st century, the next 50 years, are three major issues. Our relationship with technology, technology companies, and information. Our relationship with the environment and sustainability. And our relationship with our governments and governments' relationships with each other globally. Those are the three things that are going to determine, you know, what our kids and our grandkids, what their world looks like. Do you think that this has anything to do with China's relationship with the West? I think it has something to do, but not very much. I really think this is this is this is inside baseball for China. This is more about um, Xi Jinping's vision for the future of China. Um, I think this is largely a play that's directed towards an internal audience of citizens, corporations, um, government functionaries. This is really, and we're going to see this in the spring with the with the big uh, party congress and the two sessions coming up. Um, this is an extension of the you know the the, the five year plans except this is much broader in scope and saying, forget a five-year plan. This is what we think Chinese society should look like in the next quarter century. Um, and I, frankly, I don't think the Chinese government views it in terms of what it means to their relations with the rest of the world. If anything, they've signaled more of a we don't really care what you think about what we're doing attitude. Um, this is about us and for us. Now, where there's a dotted line to international relations, and it's a question, you know, a lot of us have been asking for the better part of four or five years is, are we headed to a decoupling? Now, when people talk about decoupling, they're usually thinking about the decoupling of the economies of the West and China. But in this particular case, we're talking about are we heading towards a decoupling of the world of technology and information between East and West? That's the big question. Um, is China going to follow its own path on all things to do with technology, information and data? Um, or is there going to be a continued interdependence um, of those dynamics between the West and China? And, and it raises a lot of questions. You know, that's when it leads to talk about the global economy, which is, you know, if there is a decoupling between a Western and Eastern Internet, for instance, um, or Western and Eastern information, what does that mean for the global economy going forward? Not that anyone listening should give a wit about what I think, but I think in this globally connected world, it's not coupling or decoupling. I think it's just a recoupling. So, you know, I, I appreciate you taking that one on off the cuff. Let's move on to talking about something that is 
changing all the time, uh, which are the digital and online platforms in China. We it's it's amazing how fast new things can come along in China and just explode and take over and be everything. And then they don't even necessarily disappear. There's just so much room in the market for just more to come on in and get everybody all hot and bothered. What digital online platforms in China are you most excited about? You have to start with the emergence of short video live live streaming commerce is 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 the biggest story. Um, it's been building for years. Uh, a lot of people, you know, don't realize that you know um, Alibaba introduced Taobao Live in 2016. Um, in, in some cases, people think of Alibaba as late movers trying to catch up with the um, the live stream first platforms. But frankly, the truth of it is they they were first. Um, I think some of the competitors maybe have been a little bit more nimble and have um, you know been a little quicker in the development. But for for me, the mo- the, the the two things you have to start with is the, the rise of live commerce um, and how that's blending with just the overall um, suite of habitats inside of these ecosystems. Um, uh, pivoting off of that, uh, it, I think we also have to look at how quickly the rest of the world is now finally adopting and adapting to uh, the innovations in digital commerce and physical retail that have been made in China. So, you know, we talked about my first book, but my last book, um, The New Retail Born in China Going Global came out in July of 2019. Um, And in it, we talked about all the things that we think the world would finally get wise to in the next couple of years. Um, And what we've seen is that's happened. And so what's happened is the the mainstays of the glue, the Chinese commercial glue have only gotten bigger. So social commerce in total, you know, what is what does that include? Um, live streaming commerce in particular, the ever expanding and incredibly diverse uses for QR codes, right? Those are all innovated in China. They've all matured over the last three years. And like you said, they've kind of been the foundation on what all of these new ones are being built on. But lo and behold, um, in the U.S., we've gone from what's a QR code to virtual full adoption in 20 months, right? Live streaming in the U.S. is going to be, by our estimate, a $65 billion play in less than two years. Um, And we go on and on and on. But if we come back to China for a moment, um, something that's been of great interest to me that I'm following in the in the live space, in the short video space, is something that we call interest commerce. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this term before, but essentially what 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 smart brands and what the smart platforms are doing is they're employing artificial intelligence and algorithms into the short video platforms to introduce short videos that aren't necessarily trying to sell you something on the spot. What they do is they follow your trend and the algorithm says, um, this is a great place to put um, a quick video on deodorant. And 20 minutes later, this is a great place to put a quick video about hair care. And 20 minutes later, this is a great place to put in a quick video about soap. And then they hit you four hours later with, 
come shop at Watson's. We have the soap, the hair care, <laughs> and the cosmetics you need. Um, so this is a big thing that I think is going to be in, in 2022. One of the big stories coming out of China is this development of AI and algorithm-driven interest commerce. If I've learned anything getting older, it's that I am completely fallible and that my opinions can absolutely be given to me. And my interests can be manipulated. Uh, my sentiments uh, can be uh, structured. And it's it's a scary proposition uh, to, to start to come to the understanding that we uh, and and I think you know even looking at the movie The Great Hack, um, you know looking at the Cambridge Analytica things and 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 just look you know the persuadables of the ten percent of the you know American voting population that might be on the fence that could be swung either way and you know it's it's really interesting, it's exciting, it's scary, uh, it's it's all the things, and I'm wondering where this train could end up uh, where and where it's going. Are we uh, going to achieve an awareness and understanding of, of, of how easily we are uh, manipulated before we are manipulated? It's in, and I think China is probably one of the best places to be looking at, at where uh, the new technologies that could be doing that to us are, are happening. Everybody talks about the TikTok algorithms and, and just how amazing they are. Is China the leader? Um, and do these things worry you at all? Well, they concern me on a global scale. So if we go back to something I mentioned earlier in our conversation, that I felt like our relationship with and the usage of technology and information, along with um, our relationship with the environment and sustainability and our relationships with our governments, were going to be the three mega forces that were going to shape the rest of this century, right? So if we start that, that one is a given, um, it does worry me. So, you know, there's a lot of talk in the digital commerce community. And, you know, as you know, my focus uh, is certainly on China and Asia, but I, I have a global focus as well through, through, through Five New Digital. And, you know, most of the smart people I, I talk to around the world who are involved in, in commerce and, and the digital world and consumption, um, we're all trying to figure out what is the meaning of hu human scaled technology? And we're trying to figure out where the border between acceptable and ethical use of information and technology is. Um, and when you cross that border into being unacceptable, unacceptable, unethical um, and detrimental to society. Now, you shouldn't be so hard on yourself because your human nature is the same as my human nature. And it's probably the same as most of the people who are listening. And that is our human nature says that we are informed by and we base our thinking and our actions and our norms of life largely based in the communities we hang out in, the communities we grew up and lived in. And so, you know, whether it's family of origin, extended family, town, village, city, it's always been this way with human beings. The difference is the neighborhood has just gotten a lot bigger and a lot noisier with a lot more people in it. Right. But, you know, what, what's the appeal of small town America or, you know, the hometown village in China? 
it's you know everybody and with some exceptions people in these communities largely kind of feel the same way about the world and have the same world outlook and communicate in the same ways and you know how did how did a thousand sub dialects develop in china right because we're informed by these micro communities that we live in the difference now is these these mega communities uh have megaphones into our lives and our homes and our ears um that change that dynamic from smaller micro or mid-level groups who are influencing what we do and how we think and how we speak um to right um information capitalism that's what we're really talking about here and and so you know that's why i'm really keyed in on the idea that our relationship with technology and information and how it relates to consumption going forward is going to be one of the defining characteristics of this century and you know the question that you know is on people's minds certainly on mine is will we end up burning down our societies through misuse of information and technology will we end up burning down our planet through misuse of the resources we've been given um and will we burn down you know a chance at a civil and peaceful world through poor relationships between governments and that's why i see you know consumption and 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 business plays a huge role in all of this but in the context of those being the big three that's where my worry about information and technology stems from well said. You're the person who also said something that uh, that we now say is coining the phrase of new retail. We hear a lot about e-com and digital retail, but I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the trends that you might be seeing in offline retail in China these days. The new retail model was born in China. It was perfected in China. The question I, I, I get sometimes is, well, you know, Really, really, did, did they invent all this? And uh, let me first set it up this way. Many of the technologies and ideas and practices that eventually led to the new retail model in China were not necessarily invented in China, right? A lot of them were, a lot of the elements were, but China and you know Alibaba in particular, they were first to take all of these disparate elements and put them together and say, if you do this, you will get a different result, right? And the building block was, how do you completely integrate the online and offline experiences of retail, right? So that was the building block. Then came the question of, how do you support that building block with the right supply chain, the right logistics, the right fulfillment? What role does content and media and entertainment play? And how do you build an ecosystem that includes all of your commerce facing entities, whether it's B2B, B2C, D2C, B2B2C, right? That was the genius of the new retail model. And the, the genius for me that came out of it, you know, five or six years ago was, you got the story wrong, everyone. The battle between the clicks and the bricks that you thought was being waged for 15 years is over. And the winner was neither one. The winner was the new retail. That the great revelation of this model is that physical retail matters and it always will. So the question then is, how do you build the relationship between the digital and the physical worlds? 
and the digital and the physical experiences. That's been the real trick. And I think what we've seen in China is the application of the tools and technologies to connect those experiences to make them one seamless experience, each with its own delights. Right. So when we talk about a commercial or new retail ecosystem, we have to extend the analogy to the idea that each ecosystem has different habitats. Right. Which is why, you know, five new digital and China brights are working with our brand and retail clients. We we try to get everybody to understand that you're in a commercial world now that is divided into ecosystems, platforms and habitats. Right. And so the ecosystems are the 12, 15, 17 major mega ecosystems that are being built by the likes of Amazon and Alibaba and JD and Tencent and Rakuten and Walmart and Target. Um, those are the ecosystems. And then you have platforms where we're starting to see. And, and again, China's taking the lead in this area, too. And I, this is you know, a prediction for, for Western commerce 2022. I'll throw one out. Um, we're going to start seeing as platform commerce is going to to uh, emerge um, whereby Netflix and Twitch and YouTube and platforms for content information and communities are going to become retail hubs. Um, but, you know, coming back to the habitats again, it doesn't mean being in the department store habitat in time or the 1919 wine shop habitat or the fresh hippo habitat or the Tmall habitat has to feel exactly the same. The point is those are all habitats in a larger ecosystem and you should be able to easily walk from one to the other. Right. I can bathe in the delights of the the jungle habitat. Now I'm on the beach habitat. Now I'm in the desert habitat. Right. All those habitats exist in the United States. Um, and you don't need to show a passport to go from one habitat to another. Well, it's the same principle in commerce and in the new retail model, which is you do that complete integration of the online offline with the different feel of the habitats. And all of it is driven by the two key enablers, which are on one side, all things technology, IT and data science. And on the other side, all things supply chain, logistics and fulfillment. That's the glue that holds the ecosystem and the habitats together. And that's what China does better than anybody else. So what I'm seeing in China now is really forward-looking stuff on how to not only put in-store tech in place, but how to completely integrate the in-store tech with what you're seeing on your mobile phone or on your desktop. So that integration of in-store tech and digital experience is bridging those habitats um, uh, even more than ever. I mean, you know, looking at programs where, you know, instead of just handing out samples at the cosmetics counter, they've gamified it. And so you have like a claw machine, like the old boardwalk claw machine, and you scan your QR code on the claw machine, and then you use the handle and you get your sample. Uh, well, guess what? You know, now we've got CRM bill automatically. We know which sample you got. Um, we have all of your information and now we're going to actually blend that information into the online experience. And we're going to ask you when you're on our website next time or on the Tmall store, did you use the sample? Did you like it? Did it make your skin softer? Did it make your skin whiter? So that's just one example of, you know, where the in-store tech and the digital experience are yet another bridge between habitats. And that's, that's really where China is taking the lead.
Moving back to online, we've seen a lot of discussion around the importance of live streaming and whether or not it's actually going to arrive in the rest of the world after taking China by storm. And, and I will say that it is also starting to take India by storm, but it hasn't really taken off yet in Europe or North America. Why do you think that is? Will it ever take off in Europe or North America and the rest of the Western world? And why or why not? It is going to be huge in the United States. And in fact, it's already bigger than most people think or assume it is in the U.S. Um, you may find this hard to believe, but $25 billion worth of goods were sold through live streaming commerce in the U.S. last year. Huh? <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it's here and it's getting bigger. It's still in the growing stages. Um, uh, like I said earlier, I think, you know, in less than two years, it's going to be a 65 to 75 billion dollar play. And we only need to look at um, who's making a play in the U.S. in live streaming. So Amazon, you know, is obviously doing Amazon Live. They're pushing it hard. Um, just this holiday season, after what seemed like an interminable wait, Google has now activated YouTube for live streaming. Twitter is live streaming. Um, Walmart is doing their own live streaming. We've seen um, startup platforms like Pop Shop Live merge. Uh, I really like what those guys are doing. They, they, they have a setup where it's almost like going to a, a cable TV system on their website and they'll have a rock channel and a cooking channel and a country Western channel. And they have 24 seven live streams and you pick the channel you want to go into. Um, so all the big, so really, you know, what you're seeing is for, for us brands, um, they've got three choices right now. They can engage in live streaming through the platforms that the big tech players are providing. They can engage with the startup platforms and aggregators. And now the tools can be bought off the shelf to uh, just plug and play with live streaming um, directly through your website. And I'll, I'll just give you one example. Um, we did a project for one of our clients uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, I can't say who they are, but they're a significant sized retailer uh, based in the Northeast of the US. And we suggested to them that they take the dive into live streaming for the first time. And essentially what we did was we did a live stream from their flagship store in New York City. Um, and we got the CEO of the company and an influencer to host the live stream. And the results were astounding. Uh, they sold more in the hour of the live stream than they did in an average five-day period in that store. They also got, and this is key, 25,000 sets of eyeballs inside their store, right? So people who couldn't physically step into the store and experience got to virtually step into the store and experience. Well, you might ask, why does that matter? Well, why it mattered was in the four weeks that followed that live stream, physical store traffic went up 40% and same day sales averaged 35% higher than they were during the live stream. So think about those three key metrics. We sold as much in an hour as we did in an average five days, store traffic went up, basket size went up, and same day store sales all went up from an hour spent inside of that store. So my message to any US-based brand or retailer or CPG, if you're not seriously investing in live streaming right now, you have to. 
it's going to be table stakes in the next six months. So for me, it's not a question of why isn't it bigger or will it ever be bigger here? I'll, I'll say here, I guarantee it. It's going to be table stakes in the coming year. What has surprised you over the past year in consumer behavior in China in general? I would say one is the adoption of new platforms where they want to engage in commerce. And you only need to look at the the traffic and conversion numbers on Alibaba and their various marketplaces and JD, um, where you've seen the overall share of retail shrink on those platforms and the overall share of uh, retail having jumped on WeChat mini programs and short video. Um, I, I think that, that that surprised me the speed at which that happened. I, I, I felt it was going to happen, but and, and it's interesting because not just from a consumer behavior point of view, but what we're also seeing is with our clients, um, a lot more of them are coming to us and saying, we would like to launch in China on a WeChat mini program first and only. Right. We're not interested in getting on Tmall right now. We're not interested in going on JD right now. We want to start with a WeChat mini program or we want to start with um, a social commerce program only. And so I think just the speed at which um, the Chinese consumer has moved towards these alternative platforms um, over the past year is probably the biggest surprise to me. Let's take one last look ahead at what you think we'll see come out of China from a consumer behavior and an e-com perspective in 2022. I think 2022 is the year that immersive 3D um, experiential retail becomes mature in China. So uh, I think China is going to school the rest of the world in how to apply AR, ER, and VR. And I think China is going to school the world on building the retail metaverse. Um, we're already seeing, you know, great progress in that direction in China. Um, you know, the things that you can do on Taobao Live and, and, and other platforms in terms of AR and, and VR and enhancing that experience. Um, we've also seen, you know, progress on the 3D virtual store. Um, so just in general, I think this is the year that that AR, ER, VR slash metaverse model um, starts to mature in China and, and is going to be years ahead of where we are in the West. Michael, old friend, thanks very much for coming back on the show and doing this. Really, really appreciate it. All the best to you and your family and your business and the rest of the world in 2022. Yeah, thanks, Todd. It's always a pleasure being on here. And, and I just wish everybody, you and everybody listening a happy new year. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As 
день.